Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. All right. Wow, blast from the past. I didn't know it was Wetro night tonight. And I asked my wife, I said I didn't know that, and she said that I should have because it was on Instagram. But I didn't which indicates that I am not on Instagram, and she is. Um, I hope we're excited for the VBS that's happening starting tomorrow. Um, I don't think I've heard these songs since the last time I participated in a VBS. Um, I'm very excited, um, and I hope you are. If you are helping in VBS, raise your hand. Wow. All right, all right, all right. If you're participating in VBS, stand up. As a a child, I don't know what the age range is. As a young, young adult. Are you excited? I can't see many of you, but are you excited? Are you? You don't sound excited. Come on, if you say, say, say yes. Yeah, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, All right, you can sit down, you can sit down. Um, Yeah, I hope it's something that you guys take seriously. Um, I know that many of the strongest challenges in our life come from, I know, my children and from children around us. And um, it's something that's powerful to be able to send uh, your kids to and have them be a witness to those around them as well as if you're helping. Um, Many of these parents may be sending their kids because they think that it's just free babysitting. And what they don't realize is many of them are bringing Christ into their home. And that's something that doesn't undo itself. So thinking about that, I hope you're very excited and I hope you take it seriously. Kids as well, because you're going to be sitting right next to others that don't know Jesus and you can speak into their life and say truth. Anyways, um, let's see. Oh, what happened to the, the, all right, we've always had that fancy, uh, the fancy ordinary faith theme. All right, so tonight we're going to be working through our summer series on acts of ordinary faith. This is the series. We are in our third week, I believe. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd ask you, what is ordinary faith? Think about that for a minute. Is ordinary faith um, just mundane faith? No. Is it a faith that's ordinary? No. Well, then what is it? Well, as we look through these passages and as we hear through this summer series, uh, I want you to think about faith that's never ordinary but is done through ordinary everyday things. Um, It's exercised in our daily lives. Tonight we're working through this summer series. Um, In Scripture, we're constantly being shown people who do great acts of faith in normal, everyday parts of their life. Yet in contrast, isn't it true, often we believe that faith is only something that's exercised in big, grand ways. That faith only really plays a role in the big decisions of our life. 
Perhaps faith is only needed in something that we believe is out of our hands, as though it's something big enough to give to the Lord. I often hear people talk about faith as if it's this, something that's needed in the big things. Maybe when you have to stand up in class for the word, when you're switching jobs, when you have to confront someone, when you're looking for your calling. You may hear the martyrs and think, how would I respond in their shoes? And while these are right and good things to do at times, my question for you is, what are you doing faithfully right now? When you hear these challenges, does it cause you to change something about your week? About the way that you treat your spouse? What you spend your time doing alone? What you're pursuing? If you're someone that's just waiting, waiting for an opportunity to have an act of faith, to live out your faith, maybe you're spending your time trying to interpret God's calling for you, chances are you may be failing where you're at. This is faith. This is ordinary faith. Honoring God in everyday things. The faithful hear and do. So, as we go through this summer, my challenge to you is to stop. Stop waiting. Waiting for opportunities of faith. Because in reality, you're convincing yourself that you're waiting. And start to have a faith that acts. It's truly a joy to be able to bring the Word of God before you tonight. And it's something that I don't take lightly. And I trust that this time and the messages from those before me and the messages of those after me are ones that are spurring you to action. Tonight, we're going to read from Mark 12. But before we begin, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for this time that you've given to us. I thank you for giving us a faith that acts. I pray that you help us to be a people that is great for you. I pray that we will do powerful works today, tomorrow, this week. I pray that you'll work through our VBS, work through the children, work through the workers, and I pray that you will help spread the word to Toledo through this. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, please stand for the reading of God's word from Mark 12, 41 through 44. And, hold on, i got to tie my shoe here. If, uh, if you have your Bible, and even if you don't, if you have your phone, please have it open to that passage, because we're going to be referencing the entire chapter. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large amounts. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta coins, which amount to a quadrants. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. Please be seated. So we're given this image of Jesus. He's sitting with his disciples in the temple, He is teaching at various points, and he has a crowd. We see prior in this chapter that Jesus has been here for some time. What's he doing? 
He's giving parables. He's answering others' questions. He gives us the parables of the tenant, the parable of the tenant, calling out the chief priests and the teachers of the law for rejecting himself, Christ, the cornerstone. And they understand this. They understand that he is referring to them. And does it make them happy? No, it makes them angry. In this chapter, we are given perhaps one of the clearest views anywhere in Scripture of the true hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They see Christ. He is in their temple. He is speaking out directly against them. And because they're afraid of the crowd, they look to trip him up. It's here that Jesus very famously baffles them and the onlooking crowd by issuing the statement, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Right. Avoiding their attempt to entrap him in what was really a hot-buttoned political topic of the time. Whether or not Caesar had claimed the money that was reserved as God's 10% tithe for the Jewish people. He continues, he's answering various questions, and he's doing this to the crowd's delight. They're delighted. And then, directly before our passage of the widow and her two coins, he issues this sober warning to the same Jewish leaders. They walk around with their long flowing robes. They love to be respected by both the fellow Jews at the banquets and the people at large in the marketplace. And then we have verse 40. They devour widows' houses and for a, for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. This is a scene that's been set for us now as Jesus sits. He's sitting away from the crowd now and he's watching them. He's watching them as they give their free will offerings to the treasury from across the courtyard. He's in the part of the temple known as the court of women. This is the outermost part of the temple, and it's the furthest place in that women were permitted to go. Jesus is presumably sitting under the east portico, which is a pillared awning wrapping around this courtyard, and he's near the treasury by the east gate that overlooks the Mount of Olives, which is his next destination. And he sees many rich people. And they're giving large sums of money. And then, in contrast, our poor widow comes in. She she deposits two small coins. Now, there's some debate as to what these coins are worth, what specifically they are, A lot of people have a lot of ideas about the specific value and how it would translate into today's amount. But one thing that seems to be pretty certain is that these were the smallest denomination of coin that they had at the time. A denomination that would have been considered insignificant. Something to make change of. Boys and girls, this poor woman whose husband has died comes in And she gives the church two pennies. Two pennies. What could you buy for these two pennies? Pretty much nothing these days. 
not even worth picking up if you see them on the ground. Unless, of course, you're my wife. And this poor, husbandless widow brings two of these coins, and she purposes to give them to God as her free will gift. And Jesus, in his divine intuition, knows. He knows a lot about this woman. He knows everything about this woman. And what he says is that these two coins mean a lot to this woman. We look at the coins and say they're small, but these two coins meant a lot. We see clearly that they aren't just two small coins in her lowly purse of meager coins. They're all that she has to live on. And what does she do with them? She gives them away freely, knowing that they might have helped her. They might have helped her put food in her mouth. They might have helped her pay for some bill. They might have helped her with some debt. Wait, are we reading this right? No way that Jesus actually expected this woman to give all that she had. No way that Jesus expects us to give all that we have. No, can't be. This is, this is foolishness. It's a bad example of financial prudence. No. Jesus takes this moment and he calls his disciples together. And then in verse 43, he says, Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, plus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. In America right now, giving out of need is a foreign concept. Only give out of excess. This is what we're told. This is what the tax policy narratives tell us each time a presidential candidate runs. They say, we're going to do great things. They have a laundry list of great things they're going to do, and they say, these great things are going to cost lots of money. But don't worry, you average American. You don't have to worry about it. Not your money. Only those that can easily afford it. Only those that have excess wealth surplus will have to pay for these big things. According to the 2021 Biden tax proposal, excess is defined as those making over 400,000 yearly. Affecting only the top 1% of America, Americans, the highest income tax rate would increase from 37 to 39.6. Long-term capital gains tax would effectively double from 23 to 43%. But don't worry. Only the individuals making over 1 million yearly would be affected by these. Society's financial burdens are going to be borne collectively by an average of 0.5% of the population. And this is what we're told each time. Not just Biden. At one time or another, wealth taxes were proposed by the past four presidential candidates. 
and I suspect more. Why? Why were they proposed? Why were these promises made to us? Because these reassurances work. Isn't this an idea that's appealing to many of us? Let's have the millionaires, the billionaires, the Bezoses on their golden throne of prime boxes shoulder the weight. I want to read to you from an article called The Idaho Statesman. Scott McIntosh is interviewing a gentleman that lives through World War II and is asking what has happened to American sense of sacrifice. Growing up in tiny Paul, Idaho, during World War II, Bill Platts remembers putting old boots in between the car tire and inner tube because he couldn't buy tires. All the rubber you could get your hands on was needed for the war effort. It wasn't that bad, though, because you couldn't drive that far anyways. Not at least on the two gallons of gasoline a week. That was the rationed amount. Americans during World War II were asked to sacrifice in dozens of ways, from enlisting in the military, to rationing, volunteering, and recycling. Yes, recycling. The entire population was called upon to make some sort of sacrifice for the war effort. He continues, Rob Satino, senior historian at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, says in a phone interview, you know, look, the basic thing you sacrifice in wartime is your personal freedom, and you agree to do service for the country, or you're called upon to do it. So what has happened to Americans' sense of sacrifice? Compared with what Americans had to endure during World War II, what we've had to endure during the coronavirus pandemic is a mere trifle. Wearing a mask is nothing compared to what they had to go through back then. Platt says, it's so comical nowadays to think that someone wouldn't wear a mask when in those days they'd do anything for the United States. During the war, the federal, federal government imposed rations on such things as butter, sugar, coffee, canned fruits, vegetables, meat, canned milk, and using a point system that was imposed on all the grocery stores. President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order in 1941 creating the Office of Price Administration, which put a ceiling on prices of most goods and limited consumption by rationing. The OPA went on to ration automobiles, tire, gasoline, fuel, coal, firewood, nylon, silk, and shoes. The government limited gas consumption to four gallons a week, then down to just two gallons a week, which was particularly burdensome in the household of Bill Platts, whose father ran a gas station at the time. He says, nobody that I know of had any qualms with the federal government because they knew they had a war to win. And ladies and gentlemen, guess what? We won that war. Why? because many were willing to sacrifice in order to do something great. And that sacrifice is being compared to something as trivial as mask mandates that we just had to deal with. But we, we are comparing it to something far greater. We as Christians are fighting an even greater fight. This is the idea 
This is what we're told. Given, giving only within our means brings greatness. This has been the narrative. We're told that only excess is needed to give. This is false. Unless you have your head under a rock, you can see that America's greatness, America's success, wasn't paid for those only by wealth, those only with excess, those only with surplus. In order to do great things, the average American has to sacrifice. Why is this the narrative? We hate the idea of sacrifice. Money, things, time, family, all of it. And what does Jesus do? He throws a wrench right in the face of this notion after watching this poor widow give all that she had to live on. And Jesus doesn't exclude you. Just as sacrifice is required for our country to be great, so even more in your faith, you must be willing to deny yourself. You must be willing to be spent for the kingdom of God. If sacrificing out of need can help our country win a war, how much more greatness will sacrifice bring for a God who has no need of it? Sacrifice is required for greatness. Our poor widow gave two small coins out of her need rather than a bunch of money out of wealth. And Jesus called it greatness. So, what are we to sacrifice? Well, obviously, money. Money, 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 money. Dollars, bucks, money, big American buffaloes. This is the reason, there is a reason that this story has the widow giving money. This is what we hold tightly to. It's our backup. And often, we believe that all the other things stem from money. As long as we're good financially, we can handle everything else. Seriously, tell me you haven't just sat back and felt safe, secure in your savings, in your investment portfolio, in your 401k. Or maybe you think, if I had these things, all my other issues would be resolved. And you'll say, eh, like I want God to provide. Absolutely, I want God to provide. Yeah, we're all happy to let God provide for us as long as it comes in the form of providence that we want. Money. Because we feel that in the end, if we have money, we have control. Inevitably, we'll find security in it. And we're fine with that. God wouldn't want us to stress about how we'll afford things. God wants us to be secure. Sure, he wants us to be secure, but he wants that security to be found in him. God wants us to rely on him at all times in all things. Think about this for a minute. Think about what that means. God wants us to need him. 
And if we really need him, that means we don't have other options. But we want a backup. We always want backups. And having money makes this hard. Don't convince yourself that leaning on the money that God gives you is the same thing as leaning on Him. Young adults, newly married couples, if God puts you in a place where money is tight, praise God. God has blessed you by making you rely on Him. And don't miss opportunities to let Him provide. Don't wait until you've paid off your loan to give, until you've got a more comfortable job to be generous with others. There are always going to be things that make you hold tight to your money. Stop waiting. If you don't give out of need, it will be even harder to give out of wealth. Because in reality, excess never comes. The rich aren't wealthy, they're just a little poorer than the richer. And this is a principle that not only applies to the young and the poor. If you don't have, give out of your need. And if you do have, give all the more. If God has seen fit to bless you, bless others. Hold your money loosely. You will notice that while Jesus honors our poor widow and her gift, he doesn't reject the gifts of the others. In fact, he has nothing bad to say about them at all. Only that the gift of the needy is greater. It may look irresponsible. To the world, it looks downright foolish. The world holds its money tightly. Do you want to stand out as faithful? If you want to stand out as faithful, give. Give freely, not just of your money, give of your time. More specifically, give out of your lack of time. We're all happy to give our time until we see it slipping away from us. Until we realize it's something that's going to cut into something else until it keeps us from things, from our evenings, from our Fridays, from our Saturday mornings, from our Sunday nights, whatever you hold precious. Are you willing to give it up for others? Just like giving money out of need makes you trust in God with your finances, giving time makes you trust in God with your schedule. Is your time something that's too valuable to give up? If you are sacrificing your time, is it being done selflessly? Or do you only serve where you have something to gain? Do you only serve those that you have something to gain from? The Bible speaks about this too. What are you sacrificing your time for? To serve the church and the people around you is a high calling. And I hear a lot about the work many of you are doing, giving selflessly of your time for the service of others. In fact, I hear with this VBS this week, 
that we have so many people helping that we have a surplus of helpers. And it's very encouraging to me and my wife. When you give out a little time you have for others, God calls it greatness. And it's never in vain. So don't be discouraged. And when you give your time to others, do so cheerfully. And stop worrying. Stop worrying about how you're going to get things done. Men, encourage your wife in this and help her. And encouraging doesn't really mean like benevolently allowing her to serve. It means to share her load, to help maybe with the things you don't normally help with. You should be serving with your time together. Dating couples. Are you spending your time ministering to others together? Are you spending your time serving others selflessly? Keep busy with things that sanctify rather than being tempted to sin. Children, do you listen to your parents? Do you help them take care of your brothers and sisters instead of doing other things that you want to do? This is good, and God loves it. Stop holding your time as precious. Are you someone that says, or maybe thinks, I'm always busy. I'm too busy. If you constantly think you're busy, that's probably just an excuse that you're using to withhold your time. Withhold from others, those you could be ministering to, those around you, those in the body, ultimately from God. And if you feel you're sacrificing something in order to serve God faithfully, great. If you feel spent, great. Are you physically tired? Good. This too is for God's glory. Our widow recognizes this. She recognized that she belonged to the Lord. And this is something that was a big comfort to her. Clearly, she had to deal with hardship. Clearly, this widow dealt with difficulty. She could have been angry with the Lord. She could have blamed God for her husband's death, for her lack of means. But no, she felt safe knowing that she belonged to the Lord. And if she belonged to God, so did all she had, including her time. Most certainly, including her time and including her money. If you belong to the Lord, so does all, your, all you have, your money, your time. What about your kids? Do you give your children to the Lord? Often, this is the one we stop at. Give your children to the Lord. Do you think they aren't just as much His as your time is? Do you think they aren't just as much His as your money is? Then don't withhold your children from Him. What does it mean to keep your children from the Lord? Well, start by recognizing that you can't make them holy. It's God that must work this work in them. God makes promises to your children. And then, what does he expect? 
you to be an absolutely perfect parent. You to spend tons of time, all of your time with them, you to read the right parenting books. No. And this should be a relief to you because God just expects obedience and faith from you. You don't have to do all the right things to win them. If you give your life to serving God, to his church, you're not sacrificing your family. What are you doing? You're bringing your children up in a home that chooses to serve God. Instead, give what you have to the Lord, including them, to serve, to work, to be sanctified. We're given the example of Hannah, who committed her first, her unborn son, to the service of the Lord. And you'll notice that while Jesus, we're given the example of Hannah. She's a great example. All she wants is a child. And when God finally gives her a son, what does she do? She gives him right back. And we say, this is faith. But honestly, we think this is a little crazy. And yet, it was for greatness. Give your children the Lord and rely on God's promises. Do you want your children to be great for the kingdom of God? Do you? Challenge them to serve. Teach them to be selfless. Do you think that God won't bless your relationship with your children through this? The story of the widow's coin is a powerful challenge to us. And chances are, all of us are withholding something from God. God wants us to give, yes. But giving is the baseline. Now what do I mean by this? Our widow gave her free will offering out of her need. You so are being called to give out of your need. But the assumption is that you are giving what is required of you. This is the baseline. Are you tithing? Are you giving God the Sabbath? Have you spent your time witnessing to those around you? These are the expectations that God outlines for us in his law. The question is, do you want to meet these expectations or do you want greatness? Because Jesus calls those who truly sacrifice for him great. Don't value others for their wealth. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think that Jesus brought the disciples over to him and shared this thought with him, them in the first place? Then, why is this time specifically recorded in two passages for us? Jesus was sitting by himself, and this is so important that he gathers them up and tells them about this poor widow's greatness. Do you think it could be that they, the disciples, 
were being swayed by the wealth that was given by others. They see these wealthy people come in and they give large amounts of money and this is a good thing and I look at it and I think this is what greatness is. If this was a trap for them, don't you think this is something that could be a trap for us? Audrey and the kids and I recently came back from St. George, Utah. A friend of mine called it the Mormon French Riviera, and it's a beautiful city. And in stark contrast to the city we flew into, which was Las Vegas, kind of an ugly city. And there were Mormons everywhere. And it looked very clean, especially in comparison to Las Vegas. It was like glistening. And often, to us, clean looks pure, right? We, can, we convince ourselves that things that are clean, things that are nice, are often holier. So in St. George, everyone looks perfect. Their kids are polished, they're polished. All their Instagram pages are polished. There's lots of money. And honestly, it's easy to see how someone would get sucked into this cult. It's like, this looks good. There's a lot of good stuff. From the outward appearance, it's super attractive. And we forget that this deep-rooted sin, this rejection of godliness, is just as evil as the side streets of Las Vegas. And this is what Mormonism is about. Build as much wealth as you can in the world. Make as big of a social impact. Have a big enough following. And this just may get you into heaven. Actually, into super heaven. Uh, I listen to a podcast that interviews people who have built businesses. And one thing that I found interesting is a disproportionate amount of the people that they interview end up being Mormon. Mormons are doing great things. Worldly things, because the rejection of Christ puts money and success in his place. It doesn't have Jesus. But we can't deny that they're doing things. This is not the Christian life. Want to know what sets Christianity apart from other religions? God honors the poor. He doesn't need your wealth. And we're constantly looking for ways to reconcile our love of money with God. It's very simple. You can't. This is the big hard pill to swallow. You can't. And Jesus makes this point very clear for us here. Greatness to the world is not greatness to God. Don't, fight, don't try to find ways to love money and God. It may seem less attractive, but guess what? It comes with great glory. Lastly, recognize that those 
that God has placed over you are sacrificing much to serve you. They're giving their time to minister to you, their homes to feed you, their money to bless you. Many are being spent to minister to this body. And I see them, and they're doing it faithfully and joyfully. And what a glory it is. Don't despise the sacrifice. Honor it. And then, give out of your own need. Do you want to do things for the kingdom of God? You must make sacrifices. All faith is for God's glory. But, God is constantly distinguishing those he calls great. Do you want greatness? The greatness that Christ speaks of, this greatness, is one that is worthy to strive for. So, trust in the Lord to provide and be spent for him. This is greatness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will make us a people that is great for you. May we reject things of this world and strive to give out of our need to others. I pray that this will be something that we put in place this week, and I pray that you'll be honored by it. Bless the rest of our night. In Jesus' name, amen.